Hi, welcome to episode number 154 of the Apolog Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. This show is brought to you in part by Bose All Natural Brewing. Check out their Lug Tread beer. It's crisp, balanced, and refreshing. Lug Tread is a lagered ale. It's a term they, it's a term they coined. It's fermented like an ale and cold aged like a lager. It's been Bose's flagship since they opened in 2006, and as of now, 2017, it's available in 355 milliliter cans for the first time, and it's won over 20 awards. Check out their full-time IPA. It's hoppy, fruity, and bold, and it's their newest full-time brand, which is how they gave it the name. The tasting notes for our full-time IPA is that it pours hazy, deep gold with a dense white foam, aromas of citrus, that's oranges, tropical fruit, that's oranges, and pine. I don't know, pine, the stuff like uh, the, the trees. And its balanced bitterness underpins the flavor. The medium body ale finishes dry with a lingering hop and fruit notes. That's for you beer nerds out there. So pick up Bose anywhere that its beer is sold nationwide. Uh, if you're from the United States, then you can't get it. So go to Bose.ca for more information on their beer and whatever new brands they put out. They always put out, they put about 50 brands a year out or something like that. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty intense over there. Hey, Amazon shoppers, do you like to shop on Amazon? Of course you do. Well, why don't you do it and support the show? Go to appalogue.ca slash Amazon if you're from Canada or appalogue.ca slash US Amazon. And you can use that link to support the show every time you shop on Amazon. Bookmark it. If you want to do it the old-fashioned way, go to the home page and click on those links on the right side. You can choose your country and you'll be supporting the show. And it costs you no extra money. If you want to support the show on a monthly basis, go to patreon.com slash You can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees. You can cancel at any time. If you want to buy a t-shirt or buy some music, go to appalogue.ca slash shop. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Please give it five stars. Don't forget to like the show on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash pod and follow me on Twitter at simonhead666. Today on the show, I have Mr. Jamie Dagg. Jamie Dagg is not only just a, a cool guy from my old past, but he's a movie director. He directed a movie called Sweet Virginia, and Sweet Virginia has John Bernthal. You might know him from Walking Dead, Christopher Abbott, and also Jonathan Tucker. Jonathan Tucker is, I'm, well, we'll talk a little bit about it. So let's dive into Mr. Jamie Dagg's life. This is the conversation with Jamie Dagg on the Apple Lab podcast. first met i was trying to remember back because it's been a very very long time that we've been friends and known each other and i remember it was mal havoc mal havoc in timmins ontario yeah you put on the show well like that particular that show, show uh, my buddy luke at the time put on he was he was quite a bit older than me i think it was in grade 10 or something or 11 <laughs> yeah i know it's grade 11 yeah, yeah that's what it was and uh yeah you were doing sound for me it was the first time anything like that had ever come to come to Timmins yeah uh, I still remember the look on it was the show was at that uh the Croatian hall yeah and Schumacher just this little suburb of of uh 
a suburb, for lack of better words, of Timmins. And it had that great backdrop that was like a like a fall. Yeah. <laughs> and there's James cutting, his chest. cutting a <laughs> pentagram into his chest <laughs> on stage. And the old Croatian man who, he was so shocked. And we were, I remember telling him, oh, it's just, it's all fake. It's all fake. Um, it's not real. <laughs> it's like a horror movie. Yeah. And so... <laughs> So Luke was was the guy into like industrial music, or was like was Luke he... was like a metal dude. I don't know where oh, he knew. I think Ron from Epidemic Records. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's right. Malhag was on Epidemic, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, was it Ron Sumner? Ron name? Sumner. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, can, I can I can't remember anything anymore. Bam, but I can. Spark. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think he knew him, and uh, and Luke Luke was part of this. Again, this is a period in time where. He was part of this like sort of vast tape trading network. Uh, like he was really into death metal, and and there would be, he would be trading like, you know, it was all different like generations. So if you had the second generation of this live carcass show in Helsinki or ooh, something like that, yeah, he would yeah, have yeah. it to be trading it with all over the world. Yeah. And and through that, he met, he just knew a bunch of bands and stuff, and um, and I think yeah, he knew Ron, and uh, and then arranged to have Mal have it come up. Crazy, um, right? In those days too, like 1991 or 1990, whenever that was. Yeah, it was a long time. Because I remember, because I had seen prior to that, I remember in, I think it was probably grade, it was grade 10. It was grade 9 or grade 10. And I had, uh, it was back in the day where you could go to the MTO yeah. with somebody who had the same eye color as you and was the same height as you. And you go, you could take their birth certificate and you could go to the MTO and be like, oh, my name is Steve Fernier, and, and yeah. you give them like that, and then they take your photograph with their if they're over the age of nineteen, and then you get your fake ID. <laughs> and so we used to do these um, trips to Toronto all the time to go buy music because you couldn't really get anything. And mm -hmm. at that time, it was like waiting for. Pardon, for, fortunately, being part of that cassette generation, yeah, you know, I would have such a great record collection if I still had all those cassettes as yeah. albums, but. But there was no real record store up. There was Sam. The, we had a Sam the Record Man, oh, but okay. you would take, you know, if you ordered something, I remember ordering like a Black Flag cassette, and I remember taking four months to arrive, you know, wow. and then they would charge you nearly thirty dollars for like yeah. a cassette. <clears throat> so we used to just we'd take these trips, we'd save our money, whatever, and we'd take these trips down and just go to a record peddler, and but when they when they used to be on Young Street, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, my parents would let us go down. My friend Sean always had a vehicle and uh, he had his own car and stuff like that. So we used to, yeah, we used to drive down, you know, a few times a year just to go and buy music. Mm -hmm. um, and one time, so Mal Havoc was a like, I think it what was their the yellowish cover, the release was that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I had that album, and that, and there I noticed that they were playing at the Rivoli, but it was I think it was an epidemic showcase because it was Mal Havoc. Um, I think Soulstorm was playing. Yeah, you guys were playing Kingpin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Under and was it Domestic Violence? I think or uh, yeah, yeah. Domestic Violence yeah. still under that label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was those four bands. So that was the first time I ever saw you. Actually, you I didn't know you at the time, oh, but I saw, okay. I saw you performing there with Moby and his fucking long hair and yeah, his, yeah. his clear guitar. That might have been before me because I think after. Well, maybe not because no, we were, no, you were there. Oh, really? Okay, yeah yeah, 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 for sure. I have no memory yeah. of this. That's the crazy yeah. thing. <laughs> I remember because <laughs> at the time it was just like, oh my god. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. like because I really like Descendants and and I didn't know when like I there was music that I liked and stuff, but sure. I, but I 
my knowledge of all the bands that were out there obviously wasn't extensive, you know, and I'm just like, oh, these guys are great, you know. Yeah, well, that's amazing. And it was the first time seeing again Mal Havoc live, and I was just, this is just fucked, you know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely crazy. Uh, yeah, he would do things, you know, <laughs> for that he would hang himself upside down by his yeah. feet and cut his pentagram in his chest, and which got real messy on tour time. Because he'd have to play like shows in a row. Because usually, if it was a Toronto show, he'd yeah. heal up, you know. But he would have like have to cut it in a different spot every every night. <laughs> and then the trick is, oh, in the one first tour I did with them, um, were you doing sound for them? Or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that uh, they'd sell the bloody shirt because he'd put a bloody shirt on and sell it at the merch table. <laughs> and then one time they forgot what was at the bottom at the whole tour, and we emptied up all the merch, and at the bottom was this bloody shirt, but it wasn't red; it was green. Ugh. The blood had rotted. <laughs> disgusting. So disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And James, obviously, like, James doesn't get credit for what James had done with industrial and modern music, putting pop and metal together. Kind of like what Nine Inch Nails was doing. He kind of came up in that same time frame and ended up subsequently working with, like, Dave Ogilvie, Skinny Puppy yeah. stuff, and, and, and you know, and... Yeah, he's a complicated, awesome dude. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's what I'm gonna say. You don't have to love the music, but to, there is credit due where credit is like he yeah. was truly an, an incredible sort of front person. Yeah, that was just it was a genius per performance art. Yeah, part. computer computer assisted music too. He was like way ahead of the curve. Yeah, that stuff like he had like one of the early, you know, recording systems that would record MIDI and. Yeah, so he had one big fall, like, because years later, he ended up having this, his whole computer crashed, and he lost everything. And he has sort of, like, and it's sort of historically known that James has had bad luck. Yeah. And uh, his car got, it was like, he had all the shit in his car, he parked out in front of his place because it was raining, didn't want to bring it all in, car got broken into. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, and then the, the studio got struck by lightning and erased his computer. Like, he, <laughs> it's like... I think hanging upside down and cutting pentagrams in your chest has a negative <laughs> consequence, whether you believe in all these things or not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's where, and then you came up, you were up in Timmins. And, uh, you booked that show. Well, he, I booked the second, so yeah, we kept in touch. That's right. We kept in touch, and then when Trigger, well, Kingpin, Trigger Happy, whatever we were at that time, you booked it, and you booked us into like a basement show. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That and was this guy in Martin's place. And yeah. he had had, that was his second show there. The first show was this band on, uh, do you remember that, uh, that, I guess you could consider them death metal band master. Okay. That was yeah. on nuclear. I think they're on nuclear. I think nuclear so. Nuclear blast. Yeah. Um, they had played there. And then, so yeah, then I brought you guys up or I think you guys were on tour and it just sort of fit into, yeah. uh, we were going across the meet down by law on our second tour. Yeah. And down by law where we're meeting them was in Vancouver, but, the very first time we did it, we just drove to Portland and played with them, drove straight across. Yeah. And then the second tour we did, it was like, oh. Is that when you guys got in the accident? Yeah, on yeah. the way back. Yeah. So then the second time, we're like, let's book shows in Canada. It'll be great. And we booked one with you. And I think our next show was like Saskatoon after that or something. Yeah. <laughs> so we were driving <laughs> all this way. Or maybe it was maybe it was the Albert. I can't remember in, in Winnipeg. But I remember playing the show. We played our show. And we only had an opening set. We're like 35 or 40 minutes yeah. of music. And then we all sat down and had a Q&A. And I yeah, that was <laughs> it was like a festival film festival screening. Yeah, or we sat down yeah. and and had conversations <clears throat> with all the crowd and and I remember it being very uh, everybody being very warm and receptive. It was the birth of like a like again for Timmins, it's not changing history or anything no, like that. No. But for a small town, you know what I mean. We had a good scene going on there. Yeah, and I was like I started selling 
because I was tired of, you know, having to drive 800 kilometers to go buy music and also tired of waiting four months for records, for records. And Luke, that same guy would sell, like he would order stuff from cargo in Montreal, but he would still charge us the fucker. He would still charge us like (laughs) the same retail rates. It's like, come on, man. So I just said, fuck this. And me and I just contacted cargo myself. Yeah. And I would place orders every two weeks for me and the whole group, like the group of people that I hang out with. And I would just, we'd just charge like essentially wholesale prices just on pitch in for shipping. Yeah. And uh, so this concept, it must've been a, like every, I'd be like the, probably the most annoying person to a place an order. Normally faxing orders through yeah, like, Oh, yeah. we'll take a hundred of these or a hundred yeah, of these or yeah. whatever. And I'd be like, can I have one MDC? <laughs> One. <laughs> As kudos to Cargo, though, for taking yeah, the order. Dead Kennedys. And shipping it out to, fruit, you know, uh, yeah, a kid, you know, like, to, who's, who's, you know, I want these records. And then, yeah, I mean, kudos to Cargo for that. Yeah, it was like Flem Records was the name of my base, my my bedroom record shop. And we just started doing more shows. Yeah. Um, I can't remember when we came, you guys came back up. Uh, you weren't with them. I then. wasn't yeah, with yeah, them, but yeah. you did put on a Red Fisher show uh, yeah, in a backyard. Right. And I was like, wow, this is really cool because you had snow fence up and a stage. And it didn't look like it was going to happen because like, the rain might have come in. Yeah. I think that this is or maybe I'm making this up my no, brain. No, no, that's true because we had to I had to get a friend's truck. We humped over the stage from a local from a bar. bar. <laughs> that's right. And we helped you drop it back off because yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, we're like, we're going to take the stage back. Like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, but... For you to even grab a stage and put it in some kid's backyard or whoever. Yeah, it was back- my friend Shelly. Yeah. yeah. It was a lot of fun, that show. That, that was, was amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because we played and I could, I, we just were waiting because I think on that same tour, we played in Florida somewhere yeah. and we were playing in a backyard and the cop showed up and I just remember putting my bass on the ground and running away because I thought, I'm a Canadian. They're going to deport me. Or, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, was John, John, John Samson. Stu- Stuart. Oh, John Stewart. Yeah. Who's who's the drummer at the time? Jason Tate. Jason Tate, who plays in Weaker Than. Weaker Than, yeah, 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 yeah. He's I don't well. I think Weaker Than is kind of kind of finished now. Yeah, but or did play with them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, after Red Fisher kind of stopped doing stuff, Jason went over to Weaker Than's and played with them forever, and he plays all over the place. Now. Yeah, like I don't see him as much as I used to, but uh, he's a good drummer, a great drummer. Yeah, yeah. yeah he changed his whole style after Red Fisher because Red Fisher was kind of technical for him. And kind of everything perfect. And then when he joined the Weaker Dance, he completely upended his whole style. Yeah, just stripped it down. Started and, playing yeah. loose, more loose, and almost yeah. purposely loose. Like, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, to be from Timmins and to sort of, like, get out of town. Like, what got you out of town? Uh, I just... It's one of those places... Well, back then, it's a lot more open-minded now. But back then... It was unless you were, you know, a hockey player or a basketball yeah. player, no one gave a fuck about yeah. anything that you were doing. And uh, and that's why we had such a, you know, sort of a close-knit scene. And um, um, But yeah, there came the time it was just I needed to leave. And so after high school, I just, uh, I can't remember, I was friends with um, John McNabb, who ended oh, up yeah. playing with Trigger Shitty, yeah. who ended up playing with uh, Trigger Happy. I did a show for his old band called No Offense. You sure it was in Five Knuckle Chuckle? Oh fuck no! It was Five Knuckle Chuckle. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was because oh, yeah, I get this confused. No yeah. offense, I remember <clears throat> that band, but I don't remember who was in that band. It was him and yeah, so it was five. I think it was yeah, yeah it was but... Five Knuckle Chuckle, and uh, and we became friends. And so when I moved to Toronto, because I the friends that I had in Toronto were just through essentially bands that I had yeah yeah met, 
And, um, and so I stayed with him for the first month that I was there. And then I moved in with, uh, Noah Mintz cause I knew yeah. Noah and Brenda had guys from head. Yeah. I yeah. did a show for them. And, uh, yeah. So I was Noah's roommate with Mark Crane. It was wow. like this great house on, uh, oh, on Ossington back. street, 411 Ossington, which I is know. still like housing musicians to this day. That's right. That's right. Cause I think I saw you cause Bill Priddle moved in there for one That's right, brief yeah. period. Yeah. Was it Bill or was it Rosie? Rosie. Oh, it was Rosie. Yeah, because Rosie. Rosie lived around. He was also living with Cam around the corner on a uh, yeah. street. Because my studio was right at Ossington and Dundas. Yeah, around that time too. Yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah, well, yeah. it would have been late. When no, did you no, move? it was th- that was. Oh God, I don't even. Because I, I moved there in like like ninety five. Yeah, I was there in around ninety six or seven. Yeah, I was gone ninety six. I that's when I, I I took off. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. 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 So that house, that house is kind of a. Yeah, still housing yeah. musicians. Well, even that last year in high school, like I went bass. Uh, Trigger Happy needed a bass player, and and I went. I flew down to Toronto to try out for Trigger Happy. Trigger Happy needed a new musician to be in the yeah. <laughs> What? <laughs> and uh, and so I went down and uh, and played and and uh, it was it was just like me and Wally and Klushnik yeah. at, at his at at, at Mark's uh, parents, parents' place yeah. on Lakeshore. Yeah. And uh, and then I got back and I was just like oh, I knew it and I, I calling Al calling Al what's going on and Al was just like oh man yeah we gave it to our other buddy I was like oh really it's like why what what would he's like I don't know like you're too nice <laughs> oh he's like the, I can't remember the guy that they got to play at the time but he just walked in no no it was before him uh, he guess he walked in the room just told everyone to fuck off and that's what they like because they're all sort of. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so that was the end of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was the yeah. end of that. And yeah. then, um, but you uh, still stayed close with all those guys for all those years too. Like I was, yeah, like especially John, like John and I, uh, McNabb. Like, yeah, we lived together on Queen Street mm-hmm. for a long time, and uh, we're good friends. We we went our own. So I still see him every once in a while, and I, I still like John a lot. Um, he hasn't changed. No, no, he's still like he's still shitty. Yeah, he's like still... in and I mean that. In yeah, a nice yeah, way. It's just, yeah, it's just that's his nickname. <laughs> yeah, that could have gone the other way. Yeah, he's, he's super he's, he's a, he's a, he's a, I think he's a really good guitarist too. Like yeah, the stuff he's doing, and he's just—he's not affected. He just, you know, he plays in his band and yeah, and does his thing, man. Yeah, you know, as musicians get a little older, they start prioritizing a little differently. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, do I want to live on a couch? Yeah, not really. <laughs> no. Do I want to live in a van? No. No. I'm he not stayed a... with me when I was living in Vancouver. He came out. Uh, he used to, he goes snowboarding out in in uh, um, Whistler every okay. year. He came out and hung out for uh, for a couple of days, and it was good to sort of catch up with them. But yeah, I was friends with those guys for Al and I when I came because I went, I left when I was down here. I traveled around with those guys. Yeah, <laughs> like Bender, and I was doing some sound for those guys okay, for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah, Bender, like, yeah, Canada and the United States and stuff. And then we left. I took off. I was like, I need to get the, out of this place, mm-hmm. and uh, so I went to. I was living in Australia. And I was, spent a lot of time in Asia and in India and Nepal and stuff. And I was gone for about a year and a half um, at yeah, that yeah. point. And that's where I decided that I was going to get into film. Yeah. I think I think I met saw you somewhere around that time where you either had just gotten back or you were Possibly, just leaving. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those, yeah, yeah, it was a, yeah situation. Because, like, yeah, because, I mean, I don't live in Toronto. But whenever I come to Toronto, I always sort of run into folks I know and, you know, and... Yeah, you know, and to to live in Toronto for that many years, yeah, I could see how you'd want to want to get out of there. 
Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I moved into this uh, into this house with seven. There's seven girls living there, which I thought on the surface, like, this is awesome. awesome. Yeah, the sitcom. But it was just a fucking nightmare. <laughs> like, and I spent, it was creepy. There's this dude living in the basement who would sexually harass the women that were living there. He, he had, like, it wasn't just, like, some bro Just here dude. in Toronto? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was on Grace Street. Yeah. 219 Grace. <laughs> Whoa, there you go. Um, he would, yeah, he was, he had, it wasn't just, like, a bro, like, sort of, sexual creep but he would like he had some like deep-seated issues you know and he was like a predator and i was like this is fucking nuts yeah. like we're stay here and it was just non-stop chaos it was like seven girls it was a massive house mm-hmm. for the whole thing and except for the basement where the creep lived and it was just like this big university party for the month that i stayed there i was like i can't handle this <laughs> i need to get out of here so i just like i just took off <clears throat> really i was gone for just left for like a year and a half really no yeah. what'd you take with you uh like were you that tr- sort of transient enough where you didn't need to like yeah like i didn't have couch? like a, like i had a futon or something <laughs> like that just left it, it just behind like everybody exactly yeah, I, actually yeah. i did like whoever's moving your next can have this yeah yeah and uh i had a couple boxes and i at the time i had a guitar like it was like 1978 gibson rd yeah that uh, i bought off of noah mints actually it's worth hanging on to well it's gone now yeah uh, but um but yeah so i took that with me and i just left yeah wow yeah i mean there's something liberate how old were you when that when that i was probably oh, like 21 or something yeah that's the perfect age yeah, it's about then yeah you know we're not supposed to be in human beings until we're at least 27 yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm a lot older than that and i'm still not a human being. i know no no i'm in your nice place here this is nice unless this belongs to someone else oh, and then you just, just it's well me and my my partner yeah yeah just squatting yeah you know, just let us in <laughs> yeah Hours i don't know whose on. place this is <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i it's it's a uh yeah so <clears throat> so were you always in a film was well, no, I wasn't one of these, you know, there's so many directors I know who were making, you know, films when they were eight years old. Yeah. Uh, these sort of prodigious filmmakers, you know, I just, yeah. I liked film, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I still remember very clearly going to see, you know, Forbidden Planet with my father, you know what I mean? Sure. Like, I still remember when he showed me aliens for the first time and Friday every time my mother would go out of town when my parents were still together they would you know my dad would always you know be like Halloween yeah 13th you know the the sexy you could watch all the killing but anytime a sex scenes come on they would block the eyes sort of thing which is just sort of fucked but it's weird yeah uh but yeah but and then in high school I started getting into I don't want to say like art house fair but like films that were to me were like different you know like the mm-hmm. those caro and Janae films like delicatessen and city of lost children and and i started getting into david lynch and all these other guys and um and uh so you've always sort of been into dark ish kind I of do like yeah but i do like you know it's just stupid shit as well yeah know? yeah um but uh but yeah it wasn't really until like i can actually pinpoint it to one night in australia um because i was sort of wandering around the world you know rudderless you know yeah. like i didn't really know what i wanted to do i had some ideas you know i was interested in architecture mm. there's other things that i was but I, I yeah it just wasn't really nothing that i was like just passionate about you know mm-hmm. 
And I was sitting down one night talking about film ideas. It was two guys actually from Timmins as well. Wow. Who were in living in Sydney as well. They're friends of mine from high school who yeah. been were at all the shows that we okay. used to do yeah, there yeah, and everything. Yeah. And we we're in there like there's no furniture in this their apartment that they were staying in. It was just like a couple milk crates and just yeah. like cases of beer yeah. and frozen pizzas. And we were sitting around one night on milk crates just talking about ideas, film ideas. And then it just like it just sort of like just clicked. It was just like, oh. That's what I, I think that's what I want to do. Wow. And I had a friend. I was going to continue, and they wanted to get into it as well. I had a friend who used to, I used to live with at Noah's place, this guy Jordan, who at the time was a production assistant. So I was very curious what he – in commercials, yeah. Sure. Very curious about what he was doing because he was yeah. always leaving at you know 4 o'clock in the morning and not coming back till midnight at night. Entry-level-y kind of like yeah, yeah, pylon watching. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And he uh, – by the time I'd got back after – that whatever that year and a half he was a production manager at the time and so i came back and i was going to i think i was working at a i was working at a skateboard distributor with al nolan snj no it wasn't snj it was uh q branch oh yeah, yeah, yeah. mississauga like yeah it was for day we used to, <laughs> it's a take like i don't know like a streetcar then a subway and then like three <laughs> fucking buses to get in the middle of like yeah yeah wasteland working for <laughs> six bucks an hour or yeah, whatever yeah. it was yeah it was a skateboard yeah <laughs> and i was thinking i was like i'm gonna get ready to apply to to university to go to film school and uh and i was in the process of preparing that application and i was talking with jordan telling him my plans and he was just like don't do it man he's just like i can hire you next week oh wow so you commercial was, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and i was just like really He's like, yeah, yeah, like you know, I'll get you a job here and there. You know what I mean? And then yeah, we'll, we'll learn get as you go. Going. And uh, and being the impatient person that I was, and much to the chagrin of my my parents at the time, I said, yeah, okay, let's just let's do it. So I started work with him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just it was the sort of thing. But back then, we were just excited. It, Everything, I fucking, I don't care how what how menial the task was or yeah. how degrading it was. I was just like excited yeah. to be on set. You know what I mean? And when you're in your early twenties, and you were lucky enough to find a direction, because there's still people that we know that wander around in their mid their mid forties who are like, I'm gonna catch my big break. Yeah, something's gonna happen. And it, what I've taken from this is that you just gotta you gotta go out and do it. If you don't do it or try it, then there's no reason to say that you you didn't. It didn't happen for no you. you've got to fight for it too absolutely and that's the thing because there's a million other like it's not enough just to have talent or yeah you know because there's you know think of how many kids are being churned out of film schools just in north america oh yeah yeah and when they were it's got to be tens of thousands absolutely even you know? now with production for theater and production yeah that's a big thing it's like but theater's on a decline like yeah how are you expecting to put all these people into jobs yeah, and what it does, I mean, what university should do is teach us how to learn, not exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And they don't do that anymore. You know, I can tell you that firsthand. Yeah. They don't teach you how to give you the life goals or skills yeah. to, to have a goal and to achieve the goal. They just yeah. say, "Well, we need to have some results," and uh, there you go. I mean, the best decision you ever made was not going to film school because it would might have put you in a whole other group of people who are pretenders. They're just pretending. Yeah, you know what I mean, like. I mean that's that's interesting. Like I'm I'm I, I kind of enjoy that because you just sort of said I'm just gonna go do it. Well, the interest, the good thing about, and I think there's 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 benefits too. Like Absolutely. I know a lot of people have gone and they've gotten a lot out of it. Um, but not you. People that haven't gone. But not for you. It didn't work. For you. <clears throat> no, no. And and the good thing about uh, the commercial industry at that time 
a budgets were really big. The unions weren't involved uh, outside of like ACTRA for, but like for crew, they weren't involved. So it wasn't as compartmentalized as it is on union like film shoots. You know what I mean? So if you were interested in cameras or you're interested in lighting or whatever it is, if you, you, if you went and like humped your ass off helping those departments out, yeah. any question you had, they would, would answer. Gladly you. answer. Yeah. We used to take like, as, as PAs, you know, pick up all the cameras and stuff like that. And, and at night, like, and I would have, you know, sometimes I'd have the cube van with, with all of our camera gear and I'd have to bring it into my house in the middle of the, like at night just so that people didn't steal it and stuff yeah. like that or for weather reasons or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and I would stay up, like how I'd build the camera, I'd build the camera, like set it all up. I would take short ends, I'd load magazines, unload magazines, like so that I knew this and put it all back to you. Like, there's no mm-hmm. way you could do that on like. No, the unions were all not. I'm not shitting on unions. There's a place for unions, but I'm just saying, just specifically as a learning environment, you know, like, and that yeah. was really, really valuable. Yeah. And if you just showed that initiative, people will teach you. People would teach you anything. And then because there was so much money involved as well, like even in the music videos back then, as roadhousing, big U.S. music videos were easily spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on a music video, which th- that doesn't happen anymore. Half it's out of focus, <clears throat> anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it was just like you had all the toys and like I, I remember doing this music video for as a production manager on it for Ashanti and not including post-production fees and not including um, director's fees or any above the line sort of fees. The budget for this music video was like $1.4 million. Yeah, it was fucking bananas. Yeah. We, we were doing the producer, my friend Lewis, he was, you know, he actually, he did a budget because they wanted to crash a Mercedes Maybach car. <laughs> and it was, this was, uh, it was, Sean, he was, uh, who was the uh, director? It was a um, big hip hop director, uh, Hype, Hype Williams. Mm-hmm. And uh, the record label was Murder Inc., Irv Gotti, and all those sure. gangster dudes. Yeah. And, uh, and so we obviously, like, the, when we gave them a budget back, it was a three quarters of a million dollars to crash this car yeah one of the dudes from def jam they said oh no fuck it we want to we'll just still get the car in the video and one of the dudes from def jam i can't remember who it was exactly um uh but anyways they bought there were two in north america at the time one in florida he bought one put it on had it put onto a flatbed truck it was driven up from florida brought to toronto just to put a fucking car like it was just those sort of excess, but we had tools. Like we had just endless tools. I mean, it was seven nice shoes, you know, entire city blocks, like covered up rain towers. Everywhere. We nearly crashed uh, an Aston Martin vanquish. <laughs> like it was, it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. Insanity. Absurd. Absurd craziness. Yeah. It was Carabana. And we're trying, <laughs> it was just the last story about this. Just funny because this job like came in, it was like three days notice essentially. And it was over Carabana and the record label and the artist, everyone wanted black lincoln navigators so they could arrive like convoy style right right and it was like caravan and trying to find a black lincoln navigator yeah in southern ontario was possible uh, two people just hired just looking for vehicles <laughs> to drive the talent around and it's just yeah it's absurd yeah well i totally dig. i went no off no it's a great rabbit hole no i love that <laughs> i love but i mean the heyday of what film and video and commercials and have we, I mean, obviously a few years have gone by since then and people have sort of realized that, oh, wait, there's no more money in the bank anymore. 
you know, a musician, you got to go out and play live now. Yeah. And that completely, I think, changed the whole video scope of how videos are made now. That, well, first of all, production costs have gone down because you can shoot anything kind of like on something comparable to an iPhone and show it. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, there's still something to be said about, I mean, do you, were you always a film purist? Well, I think in terms of music videos, you look at a music video as art or music video as a marketing tool. Sure. You know, and, and sometimes there's like a gray area where they, yeah. they serve both, you know. Um, I'd very much say, you know, if you look at Radiohead's videos where they're still making interesting videos. Yeah. You know, and they're one of the few bands that can still cobble together like a decent amount of money. Um, to do something like that. But, but for most bands that are just showing like, like I don't know, you don't need... Who cares? Like, yeah. Well, I even remember in the early 2000s when I had a band together and they'd want videos. And you're like, yeah. well, what do you want for a video? We have these ideas. Well, just play in a room. <laughs> That's all we want. We yeah. don't want any concept. We don't want any story. Just play yeah. in a room. You know, especially a Japanese label. Like, we don't want any, we don't want any stories. Was this Foursquare? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We don't want any stories. We just want you to play in a room. And we gave them every video we gave them was us, like some sort of concept. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they would hate it and not pay for it. Yeah. But it was like, fuck it. We'll pay for it. We don't care. Yeah. You know, but because that's what we wanted to do. And uh, I ended up sending a video on, as a lark of a guy lighting his ass on fire, <laughs> doing a blue flame and his ass caught on fire with a Foursquare song in the background and sent that to Japan. Like, is that okay? And we're like, we don't like this video. I'm like, it's a fucking joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. But that's, uh, I mean, kind of the funny thing about. I mean, like having a budget is that all of a sudden the budget is like, well, we're just used to doing things this way. Yeah. And then when was it sort of the turn, the things started turning around going, okay, you can't crash Mercedes anymore. You have to. Yeah. Well, it's, it's Napster. Yeah. <laughs> LimeWire, like, yeah. you know. Stop sales. As soon as, as, soon as sales stop. There's you know, no money there's, in the bank. There's no money. In the, yeah. Yeah. And in Canada, we still relied upon, you know, like much fact, yeah. um, which is gone now. But, or I think there's, they're trying, you know, the video, there's like Bravo had their, yeah, they had their, and then yeah. much had their own thing. Um, even factor to an extent had something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. For those, the, the first two, those like conditions of their actual broadcast licenses though. Um, and they've gotten rid of that. I can understand, you know, much music doesn't even, you know, they don't even program no. videos anymore right bravo i think is more detrimental to the the filmmaking landscape the, yeah um, because you know shorts is where you know i yeah shorts you know making short films you know my first short film was um you know was a bravo you know mm -hmm. eleven thousand dollar grant from bravo that sure and if i didn't get that grant you know that's a good chance i probably wouldn't have been able to make that first short film you know yeah. like it's it really does help launch is there a similar thing, careers is there know? a thing in the states that has the similar kind of i don't know i pushing I, off point I, i'm sure they i'm sure there are various not in the same way that they do in canada like the grants system that we have here in canada mm -hmm. um it's really really important but i think there is an argument you know in defense of you know much like they don't program music videos so why should they be forced to yeah to make music videos for bands sure i also have like a a bit of an issue with like i i just i don't like <laughs> i fucking hate music videos sure and that world is just like i've had like so many bad experiences dealing with musicians on music videos and uh and yeah i'm just 
really glad to have to never do another one in my life. No, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Now, the other concept now when sort of musicians get a little older is just to do like a, a, just a, just nice happy shots of things, usually yeah. <laughs> in a drone flying over Toronto or yeah, something. Yeah. And it's either they can't be bothered or the image doesn't help them. Like if your musician's 50-something years old and the music still is current, it's almost worth it not putting the musician in the video anymore. Do you remember when you were younger? Like I still remember the first time like when Metallica finally re released a video. Yeah. And it, it was really like you, especially at the, in that t with, you know, pre-internet mm -hmm. and it's not like Metallica was rushing to play Timmins Ontario or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, actually they did play Sudbury on master puppets tour. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, right before Oshawa. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did they play? Oshawa? I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure I, they did. Probably did. Yeah. Uh, God, I would have killed to see that. Um, but it, it demystified a lot of the, yeah. yeah, cause it's like, finally like, oh my God, I'm seeing these guys actually, you know, even though they're, you know, performing to like, uh, you know, it, they're not actually performing. It, it, yeah. 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 They're playing along lip syncing and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. But it's like, you finally, I saw them perform, you know sure. what I mean? Yeah. Intercut with <laughs> Johnny got a gun or whatever the, uh, that video for one. Sure. Yeah. It, you're right. It's sort of like, I remember... I had records and vinyl. I'd open records up and I'd put it on the record player. And all you had was the pictures of what's on the yeah. record. And then if someone put a performance video together and you're watching this, it sort of like it blows your mind open. Yeah. But at the same time, there is such a thing of having that little trapped up here in your brain what you your what you think, your your mm -hmm. perception of what is happening. And videos kind of ruin that because they kind of say we're pretty badass. There's a story. Yeah. I had a girlfriend. I don't have a girlfriend anymore. Oh, but in the third part of the third chorus, that girl came back. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then it's the end of the show, the end of the movie, or the end of the video. Yeah. And, and it, it sort of, it, it it keys into the fact that we are getting dumber as people. Like, we need to have things explained to us more. Yeah. You know, we need to have, like, that's why, you know, movies like uh, silly movies or, like, silly premises, they're like, oh, I, I, I like that. I, I can get into that. See, I totally agree with you, but then I and then then there's like a film like Dunkirk comes out. Yeah. Which you know, obviously there's a certain weight behind Christopher Nolan's name that yeah. automatically draws like I love you know, that movie. But it's great. That's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. the antithesis of his earlier film like where yeah, everything yeah. is just, you know, yeah. delivering like exposition, exposition, exposition. You yeah. Know? And this is really just simplified and I love what they did with the timeline in that. Yeah, they yeah, kept yeah, backing that's great. it up a little bit and bringing it forward a little but bit. But they're not spoon-feeding the audience, no. I guess what I'm trying to say. And that that film still made, you know, 100-plus million at the box office. Yeah. And so is it like, I don't know, are we being dumbed down as people or are we just being spoon-fed shit? Mm -hmm. You know, films that are essentially being, you know, created by marketing departments. And, like, I think... Dunkirk is a relatively sophisticated film. Yeah. And it gives you a bit of hope that On there's... On several levels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. not easy to figure that, like... I had to actually... I saw it twice, and a lot of things made sense. The Mind yeah. you, I smoked a joint before the first <laughs> time, so I was just like... Whoa. But, but yeah, that, that narrative structure of breaking, like, you know, intercutting one hour, one day, and one week all within a film, you know what I mean, is quite brilliant. It's yeah. really well done. I know some people don't like it and some people, that's fine. You know? no, no. But, uh, but I think that that's a film that shows too that we can still make things that, you know, potentially challenge people or not spoon fed to people, you know, and that are still, you know, 
think, you know, I'm thinking, and I agree with you. I think, but also what happens, say, the, the sort of the, the comparison to that is if you watch Toy Story. Yeah. As a child. It's, it's, this is awesome. These, all these toys are talking to yeah. me. But if you go as an adult, you're listening, you're watching this on a whole other plane and you're watching it like, oh, wait a minute, there's way more happening here. So, I mean, the same, absolutely. So, yeah, in that's modern a modern movie now, it's like they want things to, to appeal to not just the smart intellect, yeah. but also the dummy. <laughs> you know what I mean? In a way, you know. You know, so let's make something that everybody likes. Well, Whoa, everything I've just said can be thrown out the window by the fact that Fast and the Furious is still like a franchise. Yeah. That's, There's no or Transformers or something. But the crazy thing is, all eight of them put together makes some crazy like twist at the very end of the whole thing. You're like, oh, now I got to go watch them all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I got to watch them all. You know, there's certain things when you watch, and there's certain. I mean, the other I was talking to a friend today or yesterday about the Beatles, and the Beatles were like. When you were uh, when you were five, I when I was five, Ringo was my guy, and then when I was eight or nine, Paul was my guy. You Ringo was actually your guy. My guy, yeah. like I loved like the Yellow Submarine song yeah. and all the little kids, you know, Octopus's Garden, all these yeah. songs as a child, because they were basically children's rhymes, you know. And then Paul became my guy, and then John, and then the very end is George. Yeah, the very end is George, you know, and that's how. That's how the progression of the Beatles, that's, I think, yeah. that's their staying powers, that every different character in the Beatles can be a different per- time in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. No, no. <laughs> it's still a nice anecdote. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, so, you know, so you you got into, you did films, you made your short film. I saw that short film, by the way. Oh, think, Waiting? I, yeah. Yeah. I think you show, you sent me a link to it years ago. When oh, I yeah. Maybe I did. Yeah. Yeah. That guy wandering around this sort of post-apocalyptic environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he... No, I saw it. Yeah, He's yeah. on a beach. Cool. I remember there's a beach sort of a walk by the water somewhere. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like we shot in this, like, mine tailings uh, up in Beginnings Cobalt, of Facebook, Ontario. I think, right? Beginnings of Facebook? Might have been before that. It was two thousand five. MySpace. Yeah, it was my favorite. Maybe Friendster or something. Whoa! No, I remember. I think it was MySpace times. Yeah. Because I had two. I had several MySpace accounts. Yeah. I had mine. I had my bands, and I had one for. You still check those? No. (laughs) Actually, no. I get it. I still get MySpace um, things in my email. email. I don't know how it managed to get all the way through to like the five different emails I've had, but yeah, I got a MySpace update. Yeah, that was uh, that was my first. Yeah, and that premiered it. I guess it was at tiff in 2005 um and it's yeah it took a i don't even know where i'm going with this but yeah i made another short in 2008 called sunday and uh where i lit uh an actor named aaron Poole on fire 11 times <laughs> yeah. um that was a really that was a lot of fun to make and it just took a long time to you know to pay the bills i was working as a line producer and like documentary television stuff like yeah doing these specials for national geographic well, and that's the way you gotta have a discovery trade. and stuff and then it yeah. just came to a point the last national geographic series it did this thing on ocean salvage and it's just after it was like a nearly a two-year job and i just after that i was just like okay i'm done i mm-hmm. need to just put everything i got into trying to make a feature like my first feature yeah and which is just, well that well it turned out to be river but it was still many years later yeah yeah um, yeah was yeah, i guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so there was a lot of like really close call like i there's a company um called qed that had produced that movie fury with brad pitt and yeah. i just had a movie called kings of summer and stuff 
and they had read a script that I wrote called Feral. And I still remember getting this call from one of their executives this day. And he's just like, and this is after years. Like I went through a phase where I just like, I'd have to sell everything that I owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just to keep on going, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and they, uh, I remember still remember that getting that call. I was like, we want to make this film. And I was like, oh, finally. Yeah. And I was like, great. And then we just went through months and months and months of rewrites and, and, they ended up saying, "Yeah, we're not going to make this film." Yeah, I mean that's sort of a thing now when you get people get their their dirty fingers in the pie. Yeah, yeah, they want to put their stamp on it. I mean that happens everywhere. Yeah, yeah, totally. But the f- but getting that first phone call is like, oh my god, it's finally going to happen. Yeah. And, just, and that still turned into years more, like things being optioned, things falling apart, and then yeah. finally I just I was close to making that same film with uh, a company here in Toronto, and for bunch of reasons it didn't end up happening and i was just like destitute and i've gone through i was going to give up like mm-hmm. the relationship i was in before you know I was, I was looking at going back to university to study like engineering i was redoing math courses like okay i'm done with this mm-hmm. and uh <clears throat> and i was talking with feral came up again nearly made it and fell apart and i was just like okay i gotta fucking do something here and this film river that i'd written many years ago um, my friend, dear friend, Nick Sorbera, uh, I talked to him. I said, let's try and, you know, you think you try and pull together some financing for this. Let's just go and make this for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And it t- all takes place in Laos mm-hmm. in Asian Southeast Asia. And, uh, I've been there a bunch of times and it's a story about a doctor who kills, uh, or who intervenes in the sexual assault of this young girl, kills the assailant accidentally. And, uh, and is on the run trying to flee the country. So let's go make this chase film in Laos. We'll just do it under the radar. And so I rewrote this treatment. He's like, yeah, I sort of like this. We talked about some notes. I went and uh, rewrote the script and uh, showed it to him. This was right after TIFF in 2014. And I was on a plane seven weeks, six weeks later. And we were there for like five months shooting this thing. And it was just beautiful, like chaos for... The entire thing. It was <laughs> the, insane. So when you're, it sounds like, what, what's your approach to, like, you're directing? I wrote and directed that yeah, one. Yes. Yeah. Your approach to, do you go through, do you like, do, I mean, going to a place like there that where maybe you get a little more bang for your buck, was that a place to go and experiment more? Uh, or was that Well, a, it's like, it's like Laos is a communist dictatorship. Yeah. They rule the country with an iron grip. We very quickly determined that, like, to do this properly, to do it, like, to make this sort of even close resemblance to what I've written that we're going to need to get permission from the government. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> there's this uh, other filmmaker over there. Um, she's a Lao American woman named Maddie. Her and her husband, Chris, she grew up, I think her, so what happened, her story is like her parents were Laotian and during the war they fled, they came to the United States. So she grew up in LA, but then she went back to Lao. Mm-hmm. So she is a Lao woman. And uh, she, directed like the first you know horror film that Lao ever made oh, wow. and, yeah. and her latest film is actually um the first film that Lao <clears throat> has ever submitted to the oscars as part of their and so she's got she's part of like this very small community of filmmakers over there her producer who also helped produce river he's a very interesting man he uh he's sort of like the godfather of post-revolutionary Lao cinema, <laughs> which is a whole, I'm not like 
claiming to know what all these films are, but yeah. there is like this, they sent him to film school in Europe and stuff. And, uh, and I think it was a lot of it was like making propaganda films yeah. for the government and what have you. But uh, yeah, so they helped us navigate the really sort of tricky waters with the uh, the Lao government because you have to get you have to get permission for it. They've got to approve the script. Um, we it, the script is pretty apolitical. It's not like we're attacking the regime or anything like mm -hmm. that. So they had uh, you know originally the assailants were French nationals. They didn't want to because they still have really close ties with France. They yep. didn't want to piss off France, which France wouldn't. Yeah, France don't care. Yeah, they don't give a fuck. Yeah, like, yeah. I had. I had dinner on Christmas Eve at the French ambassador's house and I actually asked him, I said, can you write a letter to the Lao government to say that you don't care that we have this rapist, <laughs> this, that the rapist in the film is a, a Frenchman? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so they, there was one thing that they wanted changed, you know, and, uh, and yeah, so the, we, we got their permission. It just took a, an awful long time, you know, mm -hmm. for them to, I guess to build that trust and yeah. let them know that we're not. What about production to... costs and things like that? Was it once you got in? Certain things are yeah, because there's no like well, we still had to bring. There's no industry there. Yeah, know? yeah, you, so you got to bring everything with. So you. all of our, you know, our main, our, all our uh, heads of department and stuff, all came from Canada. Was, mm -hmm. Most of them have friends and stuff. We had about 14 people that came from Canada, and then we had any like technicians, you know, on the like the lighting side or the camera side, they were all from Thailand. And then all of our lighting equipment was all trucked in on 10 ton trucks from Bangkok, driven across the border. Yeah, yeah. And everything is like an issue. Like to get the crew in, we, I guess they had to have a new visa class created <laughs> for for the crew. Wow. Um, because it's the first, uh, like, there was an Australian film that was shot there, but it's the first sort of non-documentary. They went in under the, the radar though. Yeah. It's a film called The Rocket which everyone in Laos hates um, for various reasons. Um, so this was the first one that, like, we did it above board as, a, like, a, a North American film that mm -hmm. came in to shoot there. So the new visa class, and then, like, they wouldn't, they didn't want, it was a big issue trying to get walkie-talkies across the border because, oh, because of communication, I don't know yeah. what the deal is, but mm. it was just, uh, yeah, but once we were there and once we were going, like, the people were so like we're, it was really challenging. We're shooting down in the south. We start we're shooting all over the country, but we started off shooting down in this island on the Mekong River, just north of the Cambodian border, and the people were so helpful. Like we had like the chief of police out, who was actually in the film <laughs> himself. We had like the village chief, who's actually helping. Like any like we had this construction, we had to replace like the front of this building that we were using and stuff like that. Out like mm -hmm. everyone was really really supportive, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the chaos came from these sort of factions that developed within the crew. And a lot of it comes from everyone being sick and tired and, and yeah. all that sort of shit. But it like there was a real wedge driven down between it and it really got nasty after a while. Um, you know, the only time the government, like we were stopped, we were shooting in a market once and, uh, and you know, we're shooting this truck full of dudes with guns show up and stopped us from shooting because we had held up, we were blocking traffic. Sure. And we held up a local chief, pissed her off, so she got in her, like, local militia to come in and, <laughs> and shut us down. And they corralled us into this market for hours, and people are starting to get nervous, and we heard that they are going to take the our cards and and Easy. wipe them. No, like oh. our... The, uh, our like all the footage that we got. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. so, you know, my American camera operator, this guy, Richie, is a bit nuts. Lovely guy. But, and so we took off, you know, snuck out and 
grabbed a motorcycle, whipped across the city. We we're backing stuff up, hiding hard drives because we thought they were going you to like, come and confiscate everything. But then we got a letter from the Minister of Security from the government. And I still have this letter saying that, you know, no one is to get in our way from <laughs> from shooting, you know. Mm-hmm. And even at a, at a rap party, it was like all these like Communist Party officials, um, all these various ministers and stuff. And they're all like drunk and singing like communist karaoke at her <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah it's really lucky that nobody was hurt or anything like that and we finally we finished it off shooting in in thailand and, and shooting in bangkok is just like shooting in anywhere in the world like the things are it's so well organized and yeah. so efficient and and it's it's a really it was just like night and day like it's five months huh yeah we didn't shoot for that long i was yeah. there for that long though yeah wow yeah <clears throat> so yeah a whole team of people going running across everywhere just yeah, it was, it was it was like it was really challenging making a film. Doesn't matter Anywhere. if it's a shitty film. Doesn't yeah. matter what it is. Making a feature film is always a, it's a challenging thing. You know, mm-hmm. we're lucky to have these challenges. I'm a, this is like a very much a but it, it is a, it's a hard thing yeah. to do. You know, when does the uh, when does like the the complications where you have to sort of maybe change things this way or that way, where does it start getting like okay, now we're changing the concept of the, of the movie here because we can't do certain things. Like You have to be fluid. That's, yeah. that's one of the, if you sort of, if you go in and you're, you're trying to rigidly adhere to this preconceived idea, the film has to be exactly like this, mm-hmm. especially in a situation like shooting in a yeah. you know, dictatorship, you're, you're done. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to be able to adapt mm-hmm. and, um, and it's the same in any situation, whether you're shooting here, like, cause there's always, there's so many variables. There's so many things that can work against you mm-hmm. and you just need to be able to very quickly adapt to whatever situation that you're in mm-hmm. and keep an open mind. And, yeah. uh, it's not to say that you don't have a vision or you don't sure. have, but you have to, but you've got to be, got to be ready to, to move in a different direction if necessary. You know, if you, it's, it's one of the biggest things I learned on shooting that first film. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and from there, um, what year? What year around here right now? Well, that uh, that was that premiered at uh, at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival in 2015. Right. Well, a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, and that was, was great. It got me, you know, really signed with a really good agents in LA and management. And then all of a sudden, it's like after all these years, it's like finally people like are taking you seriously you know it's an interesting thing you say that though with any business or any kind of like doesn't even necessarily have to be art driven yeah is that if you stick around and you kind of do put your head down keep working people take notice eventually yeah they don't always have to i mean like, no, you know, I mean, there's, always, there's we, no, no there's no guarantee there's no formula for how better it, chance uh, though if you do just stick yeah. with it yeah because if you thought maybe five or ten years ago like ah, fuck it, i'm out i'm out yeah. you wouldn't be here you know what I mean? You or might people doing... that there's also those people that just talk though a lot. They are, oh, I've got mm. this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. You know what I mean? And then never end up really doing anything. And I think yeah. when you just, I, I, I used any like little glimmer of hope because you're trying, you're looking for validation with your peers. So sure. any like, oh, I got a call. I'm going to be doing this. You know what I mean? But it all fall apart. I eventually just learned that just keep your fucking mouth shut. Yeah. Until something is concrete and happening. Yeah. And then you tell people, it's like, oh, then it's it's an actual then it's real. Thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's should, just too many people that just talk. And yeah, talk and talk, it should yeah. never be a thing like if this is going to happen, it should be when. Exactly. You yeah, know, yeah. You know, when this happens or if this happens, yeah. so obviously, you know, two completely different 
sides of what's going to happen, but yeah. uh, it might, you know. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. But the other, I mean, just staying in the industry and being, you know, somewhat of a person that can be worked with is a, it's a tough thing to navigate. Because as you get old, you get a little more jaded, you get a little bit more choosy. You know? Yeah, well, the, the other thing too is that people don't, that the day of like working with assholes <laughs> is... It's it's less and less like mm. more and more people just don't have the fucking time for it. Yeah, um, and that, and that's a good thing because it is. It's just too. It's a cliche, but it's life's just too fucking short. Yeah, it doesn't matter if this person's like, oh, you'll get a, such a great performance. You know, if it's just going to be hell every single day dealing with the person, mm-hmm. there's enough talented people out there. Yeah, you don't need... yeah. I heard a good. I heard a director say something like, "I don't tell you how to act. You should already know how to do that stuff." <laughs> you just a reason you're here as an actor is because you can bring something to the table. Yeah, I don't need to tell you what the backstory between ten years ago and now is of this character. You're the actor. You figure yeah. it out. You know what I mean? Like, is that a pretty close thing to say as a director? Or um, it, I guess everybody has their their a different way of dealing with actors. Um, I like to I like to I don't like rehearsals. I just like talking about character you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. motivations and what have you and that that's where i think the best and and again keeping that open mind you know being open to suggestions and ideas and, mm-hmm. and not having to agree with everything that everybody sure. says but but it's often you come uh more often than not especially if you've done a good job casting you'll find people if you find those people that bring stuff because it's a, it's a collaborative medium you know mm-hmm. it's not if you wanted to do everything yourself or if i wanted to do everything myself i would i would paint a sh- it would be shitty but i would just yeah. paint you know what i mean or draw or you know it's a it's a giant working machine you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i think it's strong to have that like the captain you know mm-hmm. with a strong vision but you still draw upon everybody around you you know um yeah especially a- your especially your your actors you know if you're the leader of the crew uh, the the team it's uh i can imagine the difficulty navigating your way around egos and the agenda and the budget and all these things you know what I mean? <laughs> well that's that's what it is especially especially with actors it is it's 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 a giant game of manipulation yeah um you're trying to get what you want out of them you know mm-hmm. and there's a number of different ways to to do that you know do you learn something every time you work with a different actor oh 100 yeah, yeah. yeah so you think oh this person falls into this category i'm going to address it in this way this person gets upset when i yeah yeah it. you very quickly sort of gauge what the yeah. person is sort of what the person is sort of like you yeah. know and it's funny it's what adults do too yeah yeah We're well it's just it's just like it's just like anything really yeah, yeah. You, you, business or whatever you know you you need to learn how to <sighs> It's like when people give you suggestions, you know, like there's certain things that, you know, you're going to have to fight on and you, and you, every idea that comes, oh, that's a great, it's a great idea. And you, even though you have no intention of. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You want to basically you know, make sure that they're going to keep. You don't want to come off as being combative. You yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. you just, it's, it is, that's, it, it's a, it's a manipulation game. Yeah. It's interesting too, with like, say if you have a crew and you use the same crew all the time, whoever that you trust that is sort of like gives you bugs in your ears okay and then you yeah. listen to that person but if it was somebody who was the wearing the, the the rain jacket watching the pylon saying 
I have an idea for this movie. It's going to make your movie <laughs> awesome. You're like, oh, okay, all right, just watch them pilots. We got this. You know what I mean? But do, do you do you cut it off at that, or do you trust people as people? I don't think. I try. Oh, yeah, I trust people as people. Mm-hmm. I think most people are respectful, though. Too, it's not like you have PAs coming up to you consistently and inundating you with like ideas, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you're having a conversation with a PA over lunch or something like that or whatever, and you know they bring up something, and it happens to be a good idea, you'd be an absolute fool to not. Yeah. You know, but it's not like I actively go out and solicit ideas from every single crew member or anything. Like Unless that. the movie's yeah. about PAs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we have to do a reason. See, when it's really cold and dark out and you're watching these pylons, you sometimes yeah. rearrange. I have my friend Marco, who used to be a pylon watcher, Marco Landini, and uh, he would he would make like games to see how straight he could get the pylons because he'd show up at like midnight and then they would pylon off the spot they're going to shoot at. <laughs> and he would like try to get them so razor, you know, until someone came and moved the pylon. He'd be like, ah! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You get upset and move the pile back. Anything to pass the time. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Well, so that brought you to you, to now working into. How did you start developing Sweet Virginia? Um, well, that was it was one of the when I signed with uh, WME, it was my agency. It was one of the first uh, things that they sent me. Um, and I, I I didn't want to. I specifically like I wrote my first film and I did not want to write this next film i didn't want it to spend years developing something i wanted to get back in that mm-hmm. you know the director's chair immediately and it's this sort of because there's so much time between projects you know think of like the average time a film takes to shoot you know what i mean yeah on these scales you know between four six weeks or something like that mm-hmm. if you're only doing that once if you're only dealing with actors in that capacity once every three years or something you know how do you expect to master something what do you do for six weeks once every three years and truly master you know so i just wanted to get back i wanted to make another film and i had had another director friend who was in a sort of similar situation made his firm and then got with an agency and he spent a long time just waiting for that perfect script and the thing about sweet virginia is just like it it tonally it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do next but there was enough the writing was really strong and there was enough of a foundation there that you know you could sort of take it and then mold it into something and have your own sort of stamp on it mm-hmm. you know um so yeah so that was one of the first things and I I I yeah I sort of dove into it and it just happened it doesn't usually happen this way but it just moved sort of really quickly you know by the time I'd agreed to do it I guess not agreed. We had agreed to work together with the producer, this guy Brian Kavanaugh Jones, who produces all of. I don't know if you know Jeff Nichols, who did Midnight. Um, oh my God, not Midnight Express. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my brain. He did a movie Loving, which was nominated for an Oscar. He did um, Take Shelter. Mm-hmm. Much. He's a really, really great director, and Brian produces a lot of his films, and. Uh, so yeah, so he was involved as a producer and we just started, yeah, we started casting and they pulled together the financing really quickly mm-hmm. and was shooting by that summer, you know. That's kind of what you want, right? You want things to fall into place like oh, that, yeah, right? Oh yeah, yeah, it doesn't, and again, it yeah. doesn't always happen that way. After um, so many years of putting square pegs into round holes and having things not work out based on the chemistry of the scenario you're working in. 
yeah, to be able to make a, a film, you know, a year later was it was great. It yeah. Was, uh, yeah. And it being my first American film, you know, we had you know really great cast, um, John Bernthal, um, who you know from oh, yeah. like Walking, Walking Dead. Dead and. And he's the Punisher now, which is coming out on Netflix in yeah. November. Yeah, and he was like, yes, in the Daredevil, he also played the Punisher as well. But the yeah. the Punisher series is coming out in November, and he's done a ton of stuff. He's worked with so many great directors, um, Christopher Abbott, who I think will be a household name within the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosemary Dewitt, who was in Mad Men, and Rachel getting married and a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Jonathan uh, Tucker, John from, Tucker, <laughs> from uh, Music Man, yeah, and Imi- and Imogen Poots, um, <laughs> Music Man. I think that's where he got his big yeah. <laughs> with Mick Fleetwood as the A and R director, youngest yeah. A youngest A and R director. That was his movie, really. Yeah, he was the he was he was uh, he got hired to be a an A and R director. Mick Fleetwood was the record owner, the record label oh, okay. owner, and uh, in Jonathan Tucker was like this fifteen year old kid that discovered Triple Charger. That's funny. That's the movie. That's Mr. the movie. Mr. Music. So that's is a Canadian film? I don't know. <laughs> it was filmed up here. I don't Assumed. know. But I remember shooting it at um uh they were shooting at Lee's Palace and I was just their equipment manager for yeah. like to get their stuff around and it was interesting. But yeah, he was I think he was like fourteen or fifteen years old. If he listened to this, tell him that you know that we Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a very it was funny because there's like a week of just waiting to move triple chargers <laughs> gear around. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Treble charger, the charger. Yeah, back, back together, kind of. But uh, without, really? without Rosie, by the way. And where's Trevor. Rosie now? Rosie's I don't know somewhere. I don't know who cares. I like I, I like that first album of theirs. Ah, I know. Uh, once they got Trevor, in it's the like band. my corny side. Yeah, <laughs> but once Trevor joined the band, it turned they turned into to me like pretty hard hitting, pretty awesome. Band yeah, to work with, anyways. But uh, back to your movie. Um, so it's out in November. Yeah, yeah, it's coming out in November. It's, and it's uh, screening around <clears throat> right now. Yeah, it premiered. Uh, it premiered in the spring and at Tribeca in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> IFC Films is releasing it in the United States, and Elevation Pictures is releasing it here. So we're just doing. Yeah, we're just festivals right now. Mm-hmm. Got a bunch of stuff coming. So out. have you had to like go back to it now that you've had it screened a few places? Are you? Do you? Is it locked down? Like, how do you? How do oh, you... it's it's yeah. It was locked before it premiered. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's done. Because a lot of people do that, and then they'll, they'll have like the extra long version, and then they're like, "Man, we can trim about five. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that. I've got a lot of faults, but the one, one thing I, 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 I actually commend myself for is I don't. I, I'm not precious about like the first cut that I submitted on this was 97 minutes, hmm. and the final cut is 91. Yeah. Um, not, that's not much trimming. No, no, I don't. Yeah, and I don't. And like I, the day before we started shooting, and you know, I cut thirty something pages out of the script. And oh, so not the you, day. Yeah, the day before we started pre-production. So yeah. you're editing, you're editing kind of the storyline before it even. Well, we only had to, a certain amount of yeah uh, budget. It was quite a low budget, you know, yeah. and we only had a certain amount of days to shoot it. And I know we had twenty twenty one days, I think, which is not a lot. No, uh, and then three second unit days. Um, but there's just no way that I can possibly squeeze all of that into 90, the it was a hundred and thirty something page script. Yeah, and so it gave me some ammunition. There was it, some scenes that I didn't want to shoot that yeah. I didn't think really pushed the story forward. You know, and there's always... politics with the writers yeah. and, who are great, and I'm not like slagging them. Sure. Or, um, uh, and the producers and stuff like that. But this gave me the sort of 
ammunition once we, you know, we have 21 days since 130 pay script, it's time to start cutting stuff yeah. because um, there are scenes, the time, the, where I want to spend time is, you know, on those scenes that are actually important that are pushing the story forward, mm-hmm. not the superfluous stuff, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, because it's subjective as to where the story's supposed to go. Yeah, yeah, It's exactly. up to you to yeah. tell it. I, I appreciate that you've made a movie that's not four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think that's in, important because you've made it digestible. Because that's sort of like the average length of any real movie is 90 minutes or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's like 90 to 120 is yeah. the sort of... The, um, the sweet yeah. zone. But I think for, for films like this, you know, it's, you know, it's... And some people have classified it as a neo noir or whatever, like slash thriller sort of thing. I, I, they don't need to be two and a half hour films, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, I think they're actually more effective um, when you look at the shape of them overall. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And those peaks and valleys within it, where tension's coming, where it falls off, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. I, I think it works better, you know in that closer to that 90 to 100 minute range. You know? mm-hmm. Do you think, well, have, I mean, have scientists gone out to see what the attention span of the average human is? Like, I mean, that's funny how things usually fall in that pocket. It's probably close to that of a hamster now. Yeah, yeah. yeah because and... they'll forget. They have to keep recapping. <laughs> yeah. Like in 100 years from now, it'll be like they'll recap the scene from before yeah. <laughs> in the new scene. Like, do you remember yeah. this? Yeah, I remember. Well, that's, that's such a, oh, it's so lazy on television. Oh, you coming watch, back. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, and I think it's a lot of it's just to do with the fill the time, you know, because they mm-hmm. just don't have enough compelling content, so they just rehash the garbage from before the commercial break. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. Well, or the fact, I mean, they're maybe they think they're doing you justice because you yeah. just sat there three minutes watching like carpet commercials and a, and a Tim Hortons commercial, and they go, "What? What's what's happening right now?" I don't mind a five minute recap before watching like the show. A subsequent season of like a series you Especially know what I mean? that, that game you of thrones yeah exactly yeah, yeah. like I, I like to in fact i'll even go back and watch like the last couple episodes before you know those new seasons start you know mm-hmm. um but lost was notorious or stuff like that like yeah they'd have like a fight scene and then it would be commercial and you come back and it would back up like a minute and then the fight would start and you're like oh okay oh really yeah i see what you're doing <laughs> i don't i don't remember i, I only watched the first season of that uh series um I still, it was a good setup for that series. I, I like the, it was pretty compelling. Then it just sort of. A lot of people say tracks. that, but I mean, I felt so you still in, love it? involved with the thing for six seasons <laughs> through a writer's strike. You know, I'm like, oh, I have to get through this. As soon this. as the writer's strike comes, that's when you know things are going to go down. Got down from 22 episodes to 14. Yeah. So they make their 22 episode it's season. It's fucking crazy to think that net, like 22 one hour episodes. Like, yeah. I was huge. watching the, I'm rewatching The Office on Netflix right now. Which one, the uh, uh, British or the no, American? the American yeah. one? Because they went nine, eight. I can't remember how many seasons. I'm not there yet. One season was 28 episodes. 28 episodes, yeah, and I they're don't... all gold, by the way. Yeah, it's it's very well done. But have you ever ever, ever thought about getting into TV? Like, yeah, that's something that I've I've got a. Um, um, there's a couple things. There's a like situation stuff or or actual documentary. No, 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 no doc stuff. Like, there's a yeah. there's a. Uh, a series that I've been trying to, that I've been developing for a long time called, uh, I guess I can, I was going to say, I can tell you, but it doesn't matter. Uh, it's called the Horner's blood and it's about rhino poaching in South Africa. Oh, it's a really dark yeah. series. That's sort of tonally similar to something like narcos. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's just a hard, I, 
would be surprised if I get any traction on it before I make another film, you know? Yeah, it's... You know, the television yeah. landscape is so cluttered right now, yeah. too. It's There's well, 400 and, I think, 450 series that were made last year. Wow. Like, it's just... One a day. <laughs> Plus. Yeah. Plus. Um, wow. No, that's insane. But, I mean, also that there's more channels than there ever was, and there's more... Yeah medium now is i think so it's going to be netflix whatever whatever the other ones crave all these are going to be what we're going to be watching now yeah yeah and there and there's pros and cons to like mm. netflix to their credit like they they're you know they're spending money on things that no studio would spend money on at a budget level that no studio would spend money mm-hmm. on you know? mm-hmm. Based on they know what their budget is already, they already know. What well, they don't. Making. That's the they're not. You know, they're not really. Yeah, they think they had a production budget this year of six billion dollars mm-hmm. to create content. But their know? income from all of their subscribers is probably five times that. <laughs> well, yeah, they. But the thing is, though, as a company, they're still they're they're about to, I think they're close to twenty billion in debt right now. Really? Yeah. Right. Um, but they've looked at it as, cause I think they're, they're, they're trying to create like the world's largest library, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, um, well, it used to be, they used to mail you DVDs. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and so their, their model is they, they, and I, I don't know enough about, um, you know, their business just raise their rates, to really, too. yeah, but they they, they think that they'll, they'll get out of that debt, you know, they'll mm-hmm. be in the black and they will, you know. You just look at how many subscribers. They just passed a hundred million people. So mm-hmm. look just let's just say on average ten dollars a pop, you know, that's a lot of money a month. Yeah. Yeah. It's gone up to twelve. It's gone up to twelve, yeah. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because I like all the comedy specials. Everything they do seems to be a little bit more well, Who the fuck would pay sixty million dollars to Dave Chappelle to do three specials right now? Right. Like that's what they've got they're Yeah. I yeah, I think that there's something. The one thing that I do get choked up about is just the theatrical experience that's sort of like they, for their original films, you know, the, sometimes they will have like a festival yeah. premiere or something like that. But just coming, like I just screened um, Sweet Virginia at the Deauville American Film Festival in France. And it's like the French sort of event of like the fall mm-hmm. season. and And it's... There was a thousand five hundred people at our first screening there, and the biggest room I've ever screened anything in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was really cool to see a film like that. The next day we saw the French premiere of It, which isn't a masterpiece, but it's like a, it's a it's a lot of fun to watch, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of fun to watch in a room with a bunch of other people, a thousand five hundred people, yeah, with one of the best sound systems ever seen and one of the biggest screens, you know, outside of like IMAX, like. Yeah. It, that is a truly unique experience. And if there's no way you can replace, not every film you're going to see that like in a, in a like it's yeah. not every film is going to be exhibited like that, you know, mm-hmm. but that's something that's truly a, a remarkable and um, yeah, rewarding experience, you know, like there's like that collective feeling of watching like this, those scares, you know what I mean? With yeah. a thousand, 500 people. I think you know? as technology takes over though, I've had, I've had this conversation with people, but not on the podcast, but I think what's going to happen is you're going to put your virtual reality goggles on. It's going to transport you to a theater that's going to be the show. And beside you is going to be some stranger or your friend from around the corner. And you'll be able to look at them going, can you fucking believe this? And then 
that's what yeah. you know what I mean that or you'll be in the actual film itself you'll be a participant oh, yeah. or something absolutely like that. they'll like throw a, you into the screen with like a I mean and this, you can experience it like sure yeah. I mean the other thing I thought about live venues live live music is that could save people from you know that could save live music believe yeah. it or not that you could actually then put your virtual in the Rolling Stones grandkids are playing on stage and you're there and you're like I think <laughs> I think I see them, and you put your fake. Yeah. You know, it it gives you that sort of sense that you're there, and that perception that you're there. We're not there yet. Once it's photorealistic and it's exactly, and you're completely immersed, I think people are just going. If you can go transport yourself to any mm-hmm. period of time or any, and and sort of have this sort of experience, people are going to drop out. How the fuck are you going to go out on a Friday night if you just like transport yourself to some like yeah. I don't know like Roman orgy? Yeah, <laughs> you know that's true. I mean? like, that's true. You, you raise know, a good like, point. But I mean, when it comes to a, a scenario of a live or even a, a happening where yeah. everybody is with each other, that you could be in Vancouver with your virtual reality, and we could say we could get the same seat like beside each other, and I go, "Hey, man, how you doing?" And it's you. Yeah, you're there. I mean, that's, and then you're there, and you can have your conversation and eat your popcorn. And you're like, you know what I mean? It gives you yeah. that sense that you're kind of there. Yeah. And I think that's what's kind of probably save screened movies is that like movie houses are kind of like. They're there. I mean, they're nice. And there's always a movie to be seen. But the problem is that there's all these movie houses that need to have movies put in. So maybe is the quality going to be as good? Like when they keep Uh, filling up movies? I I, I don't don't know. That's a tough tough question. Um, Is the quality still going to be good? Yeah, I think that there's still going to be quality films being made. Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the studio tent poles aside, you know, they're the democratization of filmmaking mm-hmm. um, through the sort of digital revolution, you know, mm-hmm. is I think that you've ensured that the next gender, there's going to be quality films, at least, for, you know, yeah. to the future, you know, mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it makes every, everyone has the ability to tell a story now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The problem is that everybody's telling a story. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Directors are almost as ubiquitous as DJs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everybody's yeah. a DJ. Everybody's a director. But, you know, yeah. I, it's it sucks for festival. It sucks for um, uh, festival programmers who have to go through, you know, wade through hundreds and hundreds, thousands of films, you yeah. know, essentially to find the good and things. Does uh, it get political where you're like, hi, I'm so-and-so from... Oh, yeah, there's all sorts of politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I'd imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, but, but yeah, I think like even even in two thousand, when I made my last short film in two thousand eight, I think that year they received seven or eight hundred short films just from Canada alone, you know. And I imagine that number in the nine years since then, mm-hmm. that number has probably increased to thousands, you know. Yeah, as DSLR cameras get cheaper, it's like more movies. Yeah, well, that's, get... that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah, and it was a process of sort of like when you had to shoot. Um, on film, you know what I mean? There was a process of sort of weeding out, you know, because it took a, an awful, it still takes effort, but it took yeah. a lot of effort to try and, you yeah. know, unless you had rich parents or something like that, you know, to to get film stock, yeah. to find a way to get it processed, to get it transferred mm-hmm. so that you can edit it and all this. Um, there was, a, and, and none of that, just like cameras, you know what I mean? Like fucking every, we, we all have HD cameras that we yeah, make we phone talk calls on, on yeah. you know. Um, and 4K cameras that we make. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. coming out next week. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
it was i think yeah that it used to weed i think a lot of people out um because i don't think there's any inherent right to you know shut out to make a film you know what oh, I mean? okay it's yeah. not like it's it's a human right or something it's no, a business it's you know what i mean and, absolutely and yeah, um, you're right if you inundate and saturate it with shit yeah it's well there's two three there's there's another train of thought saying if you kind of know what you're doing it's going to be awesome yeah because all the other shit it's going to lower that bar well, a little exactly bit. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but at the same time wading through all that shit it's like youtube yeah you know what i mean there's good youtube there's bad youtube and there's just Good music, bad music. What the fuck is with that? I, I this it just makes me sound old. Yeah, <laughs> but that yeah, PewDiePie guy, like I don't get him either. What didn't I he say something? The, oh, he's a, just a. I don't know if he's like a bona fide racist or anything like that, but he says really stupid racist mm-hmm. comments. You know what I mean? his fan base is, right? Like twelve and eleven year old kids. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you're calling like people, you know, using the n word, like when you get pissed off at someone, like you're. Yeah. Oh, there's this other thing. Like, there's a whole other thing too with gaming. Like, people watch hot chicks play video games and they make yeah, yeah, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like glorified webcam shit. Like, yeah. it's, it's brutal. It's fucking this weird. This old guy, put the old guy yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> like, do these kids know? Kids. Back in the day, we used to have a camera that used to go... <laughs> play games and, ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it, well, I mean, YouTube is... When YouTube figures out how to filter out the shit, yeah. and, the, and when you open up YouTube and it's the stuff that you like, that's the wind, as far as I'm concerned. They try it with Spotify and stuff like that, where you... You open up Spotify and you go, you listen to these three songs, so why don't you try these four songs? And I, we're there. We're getting slowly along, closer to that. Yeah. Um, stepping along to, just to part all the shit, put it either side, and walk this straight line through of what you actually want to listen to, what you want to watch. Yeah. And I don't know where we're at now when it comes to saturation because we have way too much stuff to look through. There's way too much music. There's way too many genres. There's too much content. Yeah. Like, it's it is it, it, i think there is a saturation like it's yeah it's hard to sort of cut above everything because yeah. it's just i was talking to brent belke that's in a few oh, brent belke. Yeah, yeah, awesome. and he told me like how many pictures do you have of your kids i go i don't know maybe twenty thousand. he goes when is the last time you looked at them all i'm like it's a very good question yeah. and i have no idea it's a different age when you you know loading 35 i still have actually just got my Nikon F3 oh, wow. camera refurbished. Um, <laughs> but it was different. You know, you're very selective. You know, you'll just blast yeah. off like fucking 500 pictures in a day. It was a different process when you were loading in 24 or 36, mm-hmm. you know, descending. And it was 12 how... bucks to get it developed or whatever <laughs> it was, you know. I remember that. It was yeah. $6.95 at the parking lot place drop off. Just the time that you would spend even in dark room. Well, I always just spend in dark rooms. You know, West camera, like printing photographs and stuff like that like mm-hmm. i miss that yeah it's different although i don't to be honest with you i don't miss the headaches from the chemicals and i also don't miss <laughs> uh yeah I like you know i like photoshop <laughs> yeah me too yeah. i mean there's i mean we've like t- from 10 years to now we've come into like this crazy technology uh boost and what's happening right now is is off the hook yeah. you know but we also have to plateau at one point mm-hmm. where we all sit back and assess and go, what, what was that all about? What's going on now? Yeah, you know, yeah. and we'll get there. I mean, you know, they'll figure it out. As more people enter the world, we're going to have to figure out how to assess all this stuff, you know? Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, man. Awesome. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jamie Dagg, everybody. My friend Jamie Dagg on the Apple Log Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that one. That seemed a little bit longer than normal, didn't it? 
So everybody, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget to shop on, don't forget about Bose, actually. Don't forget about Bose All Natural Brewing. Thank you for them for supporting me with a, a lot of beer. A lot of beer and a, and a lot of support. Thank you. Check out Lug Tread and check out Full Time IPA. Check out the Tom Green beer. They've got a couple of different versions of the Tom Green beer. For you Americans, Tom Green is a funny guy from Canada. And uh, don't forget to shop on Amazon. Go to applelog.ca slash Amazon. applelog.ca slash US Amazon. Don't forget to support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash applelogpod. Follow me on SimonHead666 on Twitter. And like the show on Facebook. Facebook.com slash applelogpod. Okay, so what's up next week? Next week I have an old friend named Tim, Tim Whalen. He's coming on the show and... uh, from then on, I don't know what's happening, but we're rolling on. This is coming up. We're slowly but surely creeping on episode 160. And uh, yeah, it's been fun, everybody. So every week, every week, we'll keep putting them out. And every week, we hope you listen to them. Last week was a very successful one, Mr. Chris Ashworth from the Figure 53 company, as well as the creator of QLab. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of downloads with that. And that's very cool. So we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye bye.